In memories of childhood, Temple Ochtrup becomes an enchanted land. It was in the spread of hills round the church, as it's commonly called, that Emenach Nick hunted game, and men on their keeping from Galloping Hogan down to 1920 took refuge. Described by O'Donovan as mountain, pasture and cutaway bog, the church is surrounded by the heights of Nokalak, Mohor, Nokmehil, Nokhnamina, a place of comers and calms, lacans and files, corochs and small streams, a setting where the summers of childhood seem to have been longer, were longer perhaps long ago when words like traffic and hygiene, pollution and higher purchase were all in some far-off future. Motherhood and management were as difficult then as now, but there were little if any tensions rising from the need for prams or playpens, high chairs or pink and blue babies' furniture, or from noise or lack of space, or from the pressing desire to get out and away from it all. But if woman's place was firmly in the home, that home was more central also to the lives of men and children, and indeed to the economy and living style of the whole community. To people's homes came the travelling tradesmen, coopers, tinkers, geese pluckers, pump sinkers, firkin makers, tailors and dancing masters, beggar men and women. And it was the age of the house dance, the wake and the station. All these made the home a focus of life. And in the same degree, to the children of Champel Oak the parish was their world. Temple Moor, Thurless, Bursley were faraway places, and names like Rusheen, Strenon, Seskin, Gutnahalla, Balaboy, Achanboy sprang more quickly to mind. Over in the townland of Achanboy, they could, after all, point to the homestead of that great outlaw poet, Eamon O'Rena Chnick, or Young Ned of the Hill, as he was now called. For after the decay of Irish in the last century, all that was left of his memory were pieces of folklore and Samuel Lover's version, rather sentimental, of what Thomas Macdonough called that untranslatable Emenachanic, which yet we would all translate. Oh, dark is the evening and silent the hour. Who is the minstrel by yonder lone tower? His harp all so tenderly touching with skill. Oh, who could it be but young Ned of the hill? Who sings, Lady Love, will you come with me now? Come and live merrily underneath the bough, and I'll pillow your head where the light fairies tread, if you will but wed with young Ned of the hill. Young Ned of the hill has no castle or hall, nor spearmen or bowmen to come at his call. But one little archer of exquisite skill To shoot a bright shaft for young Ned of the hill Who sings, Lady Love, won't you come with me now? Come and live merrily underneath the bough And I'll pillow your head where the light fairies tread If you will but wed with young Ned of the hill Did childhood last long or long ago? Was it a slower process? Was there less hurry to get out of childhood into adolescence? There was certainly no hurry to get boys out of petticoats and boots and shoes were something to get used to by slow degrees and unwillingly. Well, we leave it home in the hollow now. The Nicks 
the style, as we called it, that was between ourselves and Staples, an old step up and a path across. There was no car or any, just a path through. We took our boots as far as the style, we all discarded them, hid them there, went to school barefooted, and even coming back then, we'd collect the boots, put them on, walk in home again. We'd be going out of that now until May. Well, our parents didn't want us to go barefoot until May. It was dangerous to go barefoot until May. But we had it going on for March. We carried it on along all through the summer. Now, they didn't take much notice towards the end of the year. The brand of boot in that day now was a Stingo boot, and the price of it was 10 Olympics. I remember that. And when you get the boot, you take them to bed with you. And I can well remember the smell of leather under the pillar. The, the boots stuck in under the pillar, waking in the morning, look at the boots again. Well, you continue barefoot in all during the summer. You got the bone lock on the heel. You were supposed to get that from Robin Boar's nest. You broke the toe here. The beast went off under the two pieces under the toe. They were gone the first fortnight. They healed up, of course, and welts on your feet, hard as iron. You could run the road, stones, rocks, no difference, thorns, you wouldn't notice them. But I remember now my father used to go gambling out to Devons. That was a great gambling house in our area. There'd be nine, or nine playing, and there might be six, seven looking on, hoping that they could get in for a game. But I remember in the month of November, coming back in from Bevins with my father, and we had an old mucky boreen in with locks of water on it, no, not like it is now. And I can remember running along before my father, cracking the ice with my heels. Even children of 12 and 13 must seem very big to the child at school for the first time, but how huge the men of 19 and 20 must have looked. For it was the custom at the beginning of the century for boys of that age to continue on at school at times of the year when work was slack on the farms. Now, it wasn't long before this that schoolmasters had had to endure the payment-by-results system, and although dismissal could no longer simply amount to a manager standing at a classroom door and roaring at a teacher to get out, nevertheless, dismissal could still be at a manager's whim. Small wonder, under such conditions, the teachers were often cross and contrary. One wonders how grown men managed to put in a school day under them. There'd be more or less creating trouble a lot of them too once you go to a certain thing. But the teachers were very wicked at the they were time. Very wicked. Because they'd, they'd bring rushes up. They would. Now it is a great And thing. then there was an odd man, like everything, a uh, good school. They were shoving into me, you know. And they wasn't going to have it. No. You see, they that, 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 oh. that, 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 that turned on them, you they see. They turned on them. They And in cases, there were three or four of them joined together. And no harm to turn on them. There were three or four of them joined together and bit the teacher. Mm. Oh, well, there was... It was what I'd call at the time was this... It was forced education, you know, mm. because you can learn a man a thing. But by God, I'm telling you, when you go to drive him into it, maybe you can't. Oh, sure, sure, sure. We used to stay and in school until 15 and 16. Oh, and, you know, they were great teachers. And, and, and um, I say they, 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 um, it was very good when some people used to maybe till 17 or maybe early seniors, they used to stay going to school. And when they'd be at when they'd be um, at second stage of fifth, 
they were they were very good. When I went to school first to Newton, they were men They were men. Yes. The heads across the hall, the monasteries. Tom Welsh had gone bad. James Terry. Tommy Battergott Kelly. Jim Lafton. Jim Lafton. The Thrasher the Mohawk. They were all men. They were men. Yeah. Briny Khan, one day in school, did something. And Quinn went to hit him. And Briny caught him by the beard. And there was a big window at the back of Upper Church School in there. And Briny was getting getting back to get out the window. And he had Quinn caught by the beard. Quinn couldn't do a thing about it. All he was saying was, let go my beard. But Briny succeeded in edging back with Quinn's beard caught to the open window and hopped out the window and skipped it. His master in school, Master Lamb, Mikey Hayes, got the whole of his going. I think it was Trudden Taddy, it was another brother. Yes. But anyway, he put down this soap on the blackboard, you know, up there, and you went to the disc with your slate. So I was only a child. They were, they was men, though. They had a slate pencil and the slate doing this soap, and he came, he come behind you then, around about in the disc, and looking over your shoulder to see whether wrong or right. And if it was wrong, oh God, a good bush of a stick, this little driver horse. He was getting it across the knuckles of the head or any place. Gollops of it, Mike Hayes, I'd say, was able to do with this home, but he didn't like him. Yes. And he'd done it wrong, I suppose. I don't know, but they, they were saying that he was able to do it right. You understand? Yes, he was yes. a good and all that. And they got to give him a fierce throne, and he seen it wrong. Would he? And now, when it was all over, he was there, and he got the piece of chalk, and he made it up himself outside on the blackboard. You know, everyone had yeah. it to see. Yeah. And some of the slates were big and more and more small and the, there was frames on them and the frame was gone on this one. <coughs> and the corner of that slate stood in the blackboard, it's in that length of the master's ear, the corner of it. An oak board as hard as that wall, went to the fierce wall up. It stayed in it for two minutes and it fell down on the floor. But they did a half an inch of it stayed in, in the board. Now a flop gun was made from an, 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 an elder tree by taking the, the pith out of the elder tree making a ramrod of ash which would be a good strong one getting ordinary newspapers chewing it until it became pulp stuffing one end of this where you had removed the pith getting a second plug of this pulp sticking it into the other end getting the ramrod against your breast and pressing the gun against your breast there was a, a loud report as the, the plug you had in the off end banged out of the gun with the pressure of the air inside. It wasn't uh, unknown fellas in school to fire them at the, the master. There was one fella that I knew and he, the master was having his lunch one day and he, he had a flop gun as they were called and he packed it well. The harder you pack it, the better the explosion would be. And he had a difference of opinion with the master before lunchtime. But he got into the hall and the door was open. He could see the master and he aimed well. With practice, you were pretty expert with those. And he banged the, the flop gun and hit the master with the, the pulp paper. Well, of course, it wasn't the horse, it was uh, the indignity of getting it that 
caused the rumpus with her. That fellow was, he got a hyson, which meant he was put up in somebody else's back and his posterior was fairly warmed for him. There was a teacher uh, in it for the catechism before Mrs. O'Doherty, yes. And they used to, a cure had come up every year when we were preparing for confirmation, there was the cure had come up, giving out the catechism. So, uh, uh, a couple of times a day, she'd go around. Uh, she was afraid, of, nervous of him coming in with the catechism. And for every word of catechism, you get six laps. And the hands for every word of the catechism. You're, you're miss, you get six laps. And even time out of school wasn't completely free. For boys and girls of all ages, there were tasks to do. You had to make sure that there was turnips in and pulled in wintertime down springtime for the cows. You had to make sure the potatoes were in. There may be, the yard may need to be swept. Yeah, there was no time, I had him, no concrete, no nothing, fine, left fine, all muck. All that had to be swept. In summertime then, spring, spring, summer, you'd have to trim hedges and keep things generally in order around the place. The house may need a bit of whitewashing outside because back in those times there was no houses plastered or dashed or any finish like that in them. So only armory lime plaster and the whitewash over it. And the terrace then, of course, being thatched. If the thatch got bad, you had those green streaks coming down the wall. As we used to call it, so-and-so that are selling laces. That's what we used to call the green streaks down the wall, selling laces. The same with the hob here, when the wind came down the chimney and opened fire. So-and-so are selling laces today. I used to do it myself for an hour. You go out in the garden and bring in all the leaves, a big bag, bring in a a, a big bag of uh, cabbage, all the leaves, the green leaves, and uh, there was a special knife with a handle in it, a cabbage knife, for uh, cutting up the cabbage on the floor. You'd have a board under the knife, under the leaf of cabbage, and then there'd be a big pot in over the fire a big pot of gruel, the yellow meal, and uh, the cabbage then, when it was small, to be all cut up and put down uh, in the big pot to boil. And uh, the gruel then, the, the, that would take me, you know, then to be left down, to be left down for about an hour. And then when it would be cooked, uh, to be left to cool and then put out in, in cools. Uh, uh, they'd be half it, children's like to put all the stuff in for the pigs. I went home to the for my lord of for a two-year-old horse. And I'm known to know that you'd be nearly afraid to walk it. Fill the lord of in a creel. You never saw a creel, did you? For drawn turf. It was made of lats up about three feet high. You put about it well filled you put about a ton of turf in it but I filled up this and thought I couldn't bring home enough of dry turf 
And coming out along with my horse, I got turned up. That meant that one side of the car went down like that, and it turned over. But I got the horse out from under it anyway after a long fight. And when I had the horse out from under it now, I had to get all the turf off the car, get back the car, and put the car back on the wheels. The bow pins ran down to the axle and put the car back on the wheels. Now I had the car back on the wheels. I put in the turf again, and I knew I'd get turned. Coming back, I was gone wrong, you see. I knew I'd get turned again coming back. So I tackled the horse to the front of the shaft, to the Schleirax. And I said, if I get turned now and said, if the horse won't be under the car. So I got back this way, walked back along nice and gentle, and got down my load of turf and brought it home, off of the mountain. But could you picture a young fella today? Could you picture any father sending a young fella to do that today? Mm. Not a hope. During summer holidays, there was the meadow and the bog. And for boys, if not for men, a shower of rain might be welcome. If the day came wet in the bog, what did you do to pass the time while you were in the bog? Oh, yeah. If the day came wet. Oh, you were asking me about passing yeah. the time, you know. Yeah. This is your uh, uh, It used to be working in the bog. There were a lot working in the bog, you know. And uh, I suppose... They'd idle a bit too, they'll surely take time off after dinner. And I'll sit down the bank and tell a few yarns. But a uh, bad day had come then or something, and we'd shove out to get under shelter. But I knew there was a man there then and he'd uh, go on a sort of a reed that used to grow on the uh, edge of the little strain. And he'd cut it, it was knotted up like a reed so near each other, like bamboo stick. And he'd cut the holes in like a flute and turn around and play it, you know. And when he, maybe a quarter, while it, only while there'd be a shower on. And he could throw it away then, you know. I hear it because I want to smoke, you know. But you said, Phil, that there was a pishog attached to it. Oh, there was. Having them inside in the house. They were never supposed to take him in. Sometimes he'd bring it up to the house, but if he did, I always noticed. No, but I never heard it. Mm. That was thrown out in the dunghill. No. When he was finished with it every day, and he'd make a, he'd, he'd bring it, for, he'd make a new one for the day after. Growing boys needed money, and some felt that they had a right to a small part of the produce of their father's farm. But this particular evening, I hid this barrel of oats, 
I had a thought during the day. There was a show down here in, in, in Mr. Stapleton's, and we all came to this. Those are the days of the travelling shows, the tents, you see. Everyone was going to this show on the night, so I decided while everyone was at this show, I'd deliver me back of oats. Now, I wasn't able to carry it. I tackled an ass, and I took the ass around through the fields and brought him out in the boree and didn't cross the... I should cross the yard with that, you see, so... The car house, as we call it, was this side, so I came right round and out to the boree and had my bag of oats fixed there. Put up the bag of oats and down to Jim of the Mill. Jim was always reliable as you could find. I think 17 Bob I got for it. Came on back, and all this was to be done now while the road was quiet and while everyone was at the show. And just at the end of the lane, who did he meet on me and Maggie? Now, she knew we were at that. She knew we were... She knew the girls were taking an odd dozen of eggs. An odd hen to sell. She knew we were taking an odd barrel of oats, but she always kept it quiet. Now this... Now, yes, my father went out... And that's what should be tied in his own little stall, you see. And he was going out looking at cows, you see. And there was one house, there was four cows in it. The other house, there were eight. We had 12 cows at home at the time. But that's what's tied where the four cows were. That's what's gone. So, of course, he thought the thing out, and he said to his own man, that has to done business tonight. He went to the car house. No car. No tackling. The tackling would be just thrown into the car. No, no tackling. He came in anyway, and he said... Other buyers are onto something tonight. They have that and car gone. My aunt got up. She got out the window. She came out the boreen. The boreen would be a good mile long, mucky boreen. I was coming in on the boreen with me ass delighted myself. She says, you're in for it. What's wrong? You have that miss, she said. And the car. You go back, I said, and get into bed as quiet as ever you can, and I'll do the best I can. She came back in. And I came along within about 200 yards of the house. I took that from under the car, let him into a little paddock on the side of the boreen, took the car off the wheels, carried the car on my back, and pushed into the turf shed. No, didn't push in the car, into the turf shed. Went back down, took off each wheel off the axle, carried the wheels up one by one, put them into the turf shed. Went back down for the axle, brought that up. Went back for the tackling, brought that back. Put the wheels together, put the car back, and put the tackling into the car. Scheming or mitching was one way to have freedom from both school and work, if you weren't found out. And what must have appeared a constructive approach to scheming and to divilment generally was the cutting of hurleys, for Teumpeluchtruch is in hurling country. We met some other pals on the road, and one of them said, I think we'll go cutting hurleys now for the day. See, during the school hours. So I agreed. I was only too delighted for the job. And two other... I had a small brother growing. He was much younger than me, and he wasn't equal to this job of going, cutting the hurdles, and we tried our best to get him to go to school, but he wouldn't go. However, we had to take him with us. We went. We started cutting down the hurdles all day. And... uh, because the owner knew nothing about it. The owner of the Hurleys. But uh, during the job, we saw the owner of the land coming around, getting down around to get at the right side of us, to get us caught. 
course, we had to run. And I suppose we had about 15 or 16 trees, of course. Not very big ones, you know, the makings of two or maybe three hurleys and only one and some of them. But uh, we got away from him and we had to cross the river. And there was a lot of rain like that morning and the river was flooded. And this brother that I thought to get to go to school, when he came to the bank of this river, of course, he kicked. He wasn't going to go into it. But I remember I had to catch him and come on. When you didn't go to school, come on into it. So we in, we had to go and got away. But the owner of the land, he wasn't going to follow us across the river. Now, of course, that was all right. We had got away from him. But the trouble was, our clothes were wet and all. I don't know whether we had boots on or not. But we were very wet. But one of the fellas, he said, I will we'll fix that up. He cut down some branches off of a tree. And we went around. He told to go around and collect sticks and bits of bushes and so on. We'll make a fire and we'll dry our clothes. We got off the clothes as well as we could and put them up. He made a, over the fire some kind of a, what they call a crane like we used to have and put the clothes on it. And I needn't tell you they wouldn't, uh, well, they wouldn't very well dry it when they wouldn't burn. However, we got him into shape fairly well and put him on again and came away. But uh, we were watching the clock too that we'd be home at the usual hour which we were home. And, of course, we were asked the day after when we went to school, what happened yesterday? Well, some of them said they had a headache and more of them said a sick stomach, but it ended at that. But we never had a hurley out of it. They all collected what we had done and that finished our job. We never... Because wherever a fellow with an interest in hurling went, he always had his eye for an ash tree. And if you ever saw the leaves of an ash tree, he'd always come closer to see was there, was there a crook in the end of it. And if there was a crook in the end of it, it was marked down as being the makings of hurleys. And uh, at night time, if, the hur- if they thought that the owner of the tree wouldn't give it willingly, well, they went at night time and they cut it and stole it, if you like, and took it to the sawmill down to the olive to have them cut up into boards and some of the handy men then would produce the hurleys out of the, the stolen goods. Those local boys used to be at our house playing the cards and we knew they were going to cut this hurley. And Michael and Willie shot me if we made it up that we'd frighten them whatever night they'd be going to cut it was in a, a lonesome kind of a place. So Bill Dancy and Jimmy Murray and Tommy Kindy <coughs> Or above this noise, and they go out after finishing playing cards the same noise. Tommy Kindy turned back and he says, Tonight, says he told And they were gone about half an hour, waited after Dan after them, and they went after them, and we got into Mrs. Wyland's, and not to mercy in her room. She brought down a big basket of white sheets. We picked out a couple of them and put them around us, and came on out, and dressed up, and and the boys saw us coming. We had two candles lighting up over our head. And the boys saw us coming. They were hammering away at the old tree. And the moment they saw us, they said, Oh, they said, they hooked it away over the tree. <laughs> and when they started hurling in this area, 
Turles Blues as they were going strong. At that time in Turles, we say, had got properly equipped for hurling. But the only hurlies improvised that Phil Shelley and Jack Wrigley had were two sides of a hames, you know, the timber hames that they about two feet longer, approximately, and the kind of a curve on them, you know, for, for outside the horse's collar. And they got one of these each, you see, went out in the next field and started poking the, poking the ball one to one. And even after there was quite a few more. Quite a few more and a few more. And that's how the milestone the team milestone originated. The team originated, you see. They eventually formed a club. And um, you had the famous milestone team. You had that. a good milestone team then. There was no such thing as junior grades at that time. They had to go into the best one county. And they were able to give them a reasonably good show. In fact, some of them came came to be possible on the county team of the time. And of course, they never had a place to hurl. Because there was no such thing as a level field anywhere. It was, you got the, some little bit of a level bit on the top of uh, the hill somewhere. And there might be only 10 yards wide. What that had to do? The cock ball now, Mick. Well, uh, ravel and old stock going to be the first thing. It's just that you have all ravel thread. And you get three or four corks. Ordinary corks of bottles that they used at that time, beer bottles that have a heel, and uh, fit him into a little lump, as I say, cut, cut a couple of them on the outside and make him a kind of roundy. Then you wind this ball of thread around them, and you get some cards then, and uh, pack a needle. That's right, yeah. And you stitch it up away, crisscross, keep going around it, you know, stitch in, stitch out, and wind it up ever so close. Well, eventually you got it nice and hard. Of course, you couldn't afford a cover. No. You might get, if there was a boot maker around or a harness maker, he might be good enough to oblige you if you had the time for any covering. But usually we used to manage to do it any cover. The ball is quite all right, good for hurling, until it got wet. But you see, the thread, you thread it on a wet ground or puddly place, well, the thread soaks up all the wet in the mud. Mm. And of course, the ball wouldn't go very far. But nevertheless, I done this work, you know. Give us a bit of amusement and exercise, and we'd come in good and warm. Uh, the ball was always a homemade one. We often made them. You, you start by getting corks and cutting up corks and getting an old stocking that wouldn't be fit for darning and unravelling that. When you cut one, you could unravel the whole stocking into a ball of wool and you proceeded to roll that around the corks. And when you had a fair-sized ball made, you got a packing needle and twine, and you stitch that through so that you keep the, the thread from breaking off into the hurling. So the hurling ball was always a, a, a thread ball, as we used to call them. And when the first hurling balls, as we know them now, came up, we used to call them tan balls. And, and a tan ball and a booby hurling was a, about the, the highest point of imagination anyone could imagine themselves having because a crook and a, and a thread ball was all we ever knew. They used to call them a crook. <laughs> a crook. They'd be made from a... Yeah, it could be a kind of sally, what they call a black sally, so heavy enough. But it wouldn't be wide like the hurley now. Still round, the same shape as the hurley, but that it would be narrow, down around the, what we call the boss, the hurley. <coughs> but there were plenty of them. Back in the old days. We played hurling at school every day. 
But it was very few fellas had what we called a boordy hurley. A boordy hurley was what one would call now a normal hurley. What we hurled with were crooks. You went down to the to the valley and you cut a sally stick with a turn on the bottom of it. And uh, Sally would be fairly hefty and they'd stand up to a lot of rough treatment. But we huddled with crooks. I saw lads holding in school, if you're really stuck, you went over to the ditch and you pulled a, a forest bush out of the ditch. If there was a crook on the end of it, that sufficed. And it was amazing how accurate fellows were able to huddle. Boys needed speed and stamina in their games. But the peaks of skill reached by girls playing jackstones was something that even the boys held in wonder. This game made its way from Asia in ancient times and was known as Five Stones in England and as Scraga or Craga in the Gaeltacht. In 1862, the famous Wexford folklorist Patrick Kennedy observed schoolgirls at it during their play hour and remarked that the listless little girls of cities seemed thoroughly ignorant of this exciting pastime. Well, it was a game played with five round stones and had various formations and various things to do with the stones. For example, one of the things they had to do was to take five stones off the ground in one hand, throw them up in the air, turn the back of their hand and catch them on the back of their hand falling down. And each phase of the game had a particular name. Now, I can only recall some of them. There was Butters as Ones, Butters as Twos, Drive Home the Cows. Those were three that I can recall straight away. But it was something that I often attempted, but I could never do. But it was amazing what girls could do. They, they could do anything with these five stones. To, to remind you of a juggler with, that you see in a circus with plates and that kind of thing, how they can catch them. Well, it was the same with marbles. They could absolutely do anything with them, manipulate them any way at all. And the girls sat down uh, in a ring and they, they play those at lunchtime or in day after day during the summertime. To, to be much like the fella, you didn't see him either. Uh, I saw him at the races, no. They thrown three balls, you know them. Yeah, you know, jugglers. Juggles. Yeah. Uh, they have five stones. Yeah. And uh, I don't think it was so much a game. You had one. There were four of them there now. And you had one in your hand. You throw, you throw up this one. And you move one. And catch the one coming down and leave it in its place. And pick up another one, throw it. And shove that hand along, you know, to get them into formation. Get them into different patterns and things like that. Leslie Dakin, that great Irish authority on children's games, has remarked on the robust preference in Ireland for all manner of pursuit games. Scarcely a town or village will you find, he says, where varying forms of fox and geese, hares and hounds, spy for riders, hunt the fox, relieve the I.O. and cockalarum are not generally known and liked. But stone and ball games mustn't have been far behind in popularity. Aladdin and the Magic Lamp from Burton's Arabian Nights managed to become an Irish folktale in the 19th century and when Mihal Tomani wrote it down in 1903 we find Aladdin in the very first sentence playing duck and cat all day long. Well might he have been just one of the boys of Tempelochtrach. Here's in Hounds was another 
game at lunchtime. A couple of good runners were let off as hares, and all the others followed them. Well, occasionally it happened that they went too far and they didn't arrive back at the prescribed time when lunchtime was over and there was always hell to pay then. The hares and the hounds got who began it from, from the master when they, when they arrived back a half an hour late. I, I knew on one occasion now that they went two or three miles away from the school running. And not that they meant to stay out late, but in the excitement of the chase, they forgot that the time was going and these lads had to be caught and that was that. And it was only when somebody realised that later when the hair was caught, well, God, lads, we're late. Then the worry would be able to get back, that they come back to sweat pouring off them. I got a ring in the, in the road and put a line back so many yards, about seven or eight yards. And it had this little bit of a stick, it would be about six inches long. And it pointed on each end. And one man had stand at the ring, and, and the other man, was chap after he'd thrown it, he'd get his cap. And when the man at the ring had hit the, hit the cat, it would hop up. And if he could get, catch it in his house, you'd be out, you see. You'd have to throw it in, and the other fellow would get a little stick at it. And uh, if he didn't catch it, you'd hit it a tap and hit it off away as far as you could. And give him so many jumps then to bring back the cash that we used to call it. Suppose they'd win ten yards, you'd give him five jumps to bring it back. And if he didn't, you'd be still in, playing away. When they played spy, which meant somebody going to hide, or playing, as it was known as folly, somebody following somebody else, in order to pick out the, the one who was to take over the, the, the bed, as it was known, but the first game of spy, somebody was to lie down and wait until everybody else was gone. They had various ways of designating who to be. All would stand around in a circle, and the leader would start around pointing at each one, ickle, ockle, blue bottle, ickle, ockle, out. Well, they were safe, they weren't going to be caught, and then they went back again and repeated it and each one as out was said to them, they were let go. Whoever was the last in would be the one that would have to lie. A stone on the road now, a good stone up on the road, and put a smaller one like a sand of turf up on top of it. Oh, yes, and you pressure. And you throw at it. And I forget the rules of it, we'll say. You get so many throws to knock off the fellow that would be in possession of the pedestal, as we'll say. And uh, if he knocked it off, you had to run as quick as you could to put it up. That was part of the game, do you see? And the danger was, I often wonder how they escaped, because the man below the line, he would like to take a shot again, dear, at the duck again, dear, before you had your hand off, you see. It was all speed. Well, Kippins, as I said, was one of the popular games at school. Two of the best runners would be selected as captains, and they'd tossed to know which would have first call and each of them would pick the fastest and the bravest lads he could on his team. They took their coats off and they placed them in a line down in the middle of the field. And about 40 yards on either side of the line, they stuck down on the ground five kittens, as they were called. And the object of the game then was, one on one side of the line would run, try and take a kitten from the opposing side of the line, and get back to his own side without being caught. So, 
you spread out in a line along the field, watched your chance until you thought you could make a clear bid for the opposing bunch of kippens. The minute you crossed the line, everybody there followed you to try and catch you. Well, you lured as many as you could of the good runners away. Then another fella of your own team see an opportunity of getting over and getting back without being caught. So it was a game of, of bluff. You lured them away by sending over somebody who was likely to be caught. And while that was happening, he lured them away from the kippens and got the kippens back. And whoever succeeded in getting the five kippens away from one side, back to their own side, won the game. Well, now, if a fellow was caught, he was held a prisoner. And he could be released by somebody going over and touching him and making a bid to get back across the line himself. So you had to get the kippens back and have no prisoners in order to win the game. From Thurless Town to Galtys Brow, all peelers turn pale. When the boys attack the barracks at the call of Grandjewel. From hill to hill that winter's night they sped the rifle ball. At Hollyford they did succeed but failed at Thrumban Hall. The rag we need not mention now where we lost... Around the black and tan times, there were battles fought in school. The final demands would fight the Garnakilkas. Now, the, the, there was a, a, at the back of Garnakilka school, there was an old cabin, an old broken-down cabin, and the Garnakilkas would take possession of that, and the Philemons would attack them at lunchtime. Now, I can remember going on a Sunday and, and renovating this cabin to have it bulletproof for the next day's battle. It meant stuffing every hole in the place and taking in stones inside. You had a good heap of ammunition ready on the inside. And the lads outside fired stones at you inside. Occasionally a fellow was hit too with stones. But the, the real brave fellow then would, would sneak up on, 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 on all fours and try and get up on the roof to drop stones down. In other words, they were emulating attacks on barracks. There was a valley below the school and the final man's coming to school in the morning would be passing up this valley and they brought spades and shovels with them, cast-offs that they got at home and they went into the valley and they dug a hole into the side of the valley and made a dugout in it and they'd go in there for a quarter of an hour or 20 minutes every morning on the way to school and it was the thing to do and if you weren't prepared to stay five minutes late for school ten minutes late for school well you weren't a good soldier you were showing a white feather if you didn't go into the dugout but after that during the rest of the week they never used this thing but it had to be done in the morning on the way to school we got an able genius of a nice we, we fixed him and we got the loan of an asses cat and checked him up for an able and through the time of the black and tans we went down the bar and over Clarion and up out of the dark road, and into Bill Maher's field of Ballycahill, where Patch Dixon was living now. We put the genus inside there. There was an elbow around the hacker that was coming out from the field, and we tied him in it. And we was just gone away from him. Maher had horses there, and there was an entire on him. And before he came on, he finished the genus. We had to take out the yoking in on the road, 
And we tried the genus outside the Dyer and Gaze. Of course, the horse couldn't go through the Dyer and Gaze too well. And we went up and into Dan Long's orchard of Ballyshahar, over at the back. There were fancy trees to pull apples of. There was brandy in the road, till ground around them, and all the branches very low. And we came back out and did those few bursts of apples as far as just where the genus was. When the light shone up through the trees in Cashel Forest, and there were soldiers in it, got you escaped. We barely had him opened, and we didn't close the gate at all. We didn't get time. I had him gone around this elbow with the haggard out of the way. When and they came about, 20 soldiers in a lorry, British soldiers, and up his to the crash of Ballycar and turned down by a hole, I suppose, and wrote it in for more. So we've never seen it since. We, we pulled out the genus on the road, we shut the gate all right, and came up here those skis, Barrack, in the thick of the foyers, the time of the black and trans. With your apples. With your apples. Well, you see, it was a favourite pastime when we were young lads, you see, to go, what we call fishing. That was the small streams coming down here, you could go groping under the bank. The stream now, three or four inches of water, do you see? There'd be pools in that, maybe uh, a foot deep and in under the lower hanging bank. That'd be the place you'd find trout. We were quick enough to know where the trout would be. And when you come to this little in where the water would be stopped, and the water would be up to about a foot, you get down on your f- face and hands and breast on the bank, you see, and take off your clothes, and grow up in under it. The, the plan was, you see, to reach out your two arms as far as you could at each side and bring them slowly along the bank underneath until you feel the trout. When you feel the trout, you were to rub him and tickle him nice and soft and he wouldn't go for you. But if you squeeze your hands, he was gone like a streaky lightning. So we'd rub him and tickle him and shove him along. And there's always a little place underneath the bank where the trout is, where he has a hole in the mud at one side and a hole out the other. But if you could get him to that, you had him safe and sound inside. But if you had him in open water and you still wanted to catch him, you keep massaging him up along and rubbing him and you get near his gills. And that you squeezed in... Just behind the ear you had him, and now you'll put him and throw him out in the bank, and he'd be lipping there for five minutes. <laughs> Good man. Well, now we'd have five or six of them collected. They say we used to make what we call a hank of rushes. You'd put five or six rushes side by side together, and in through their gills, in through one ear, now into the other ear. And every fellow would be coming home swinging his hank of uh, trout, he'd be very proud. And it'll lad, you know, now about the length of your, half the length of your hand, it'd be a nice little trout. Fell the full length of your hand, it'd be an enormous trout. And the lad that go a couple of inches above the wrist, or he'd be supposed to be a monster. We had a name for a while. They were in the category this age time we got. If hunger overtook one fishing or hunting, there were the pig nut and the cuckoo sorrel, blackberries and hors in season. In picking the hors, we became so adept at it that we knew exactly. We could even, at a distance, we could tell you where you'd get hors. And we had certain a certain route that you'll travel today. Well, you wouldn't go back picking there again for another week until the next lot would be ripe. But each place you went, we had a, a special designation for it. Where Cooney's Valley was one day's outing. Jimmy DeWire's Ditch was another day. Connie the Heels Hill. And, and so on. And when you had gone to those places, you went back then again to Cooney's Valley the next day, and so on. So that you always had a, a fresh supply. Gathering the horrors was part of the ancient festival of Lunasa. The enthusiastic pickers scarcely knew they were doing what had been done for over 2,000 years. Neither did they know that they were growing to manhood at a time which saw the end of so many other things, of the wake the pishogues of butter stealers, the scythe, 
the lazy beds on hillsides, the end of untarred roads and bare feet to school.